If you'll take out your Bibles and open to the book of Acts, uh, we're picking up at uh, chapter 12, verse 25, and going all the way to 13, 20, or 52, rather. It's kind of a big Sunday. It seems like a good day to, you know, do 53 or 54 verses, so let's, let's do it. Um, <clears throat> we've been working through our series in the book of Acts, the rise of the Christian church. That's what we've been observing, and... At this particular point in the book, we see that there are several massive shifts underway. First of all, there's a shift in sort of key leadership from Peter to Paul. Up to this point uh, in the book, we've heard most of, of the work and the expansion of the church and the proclamation of the gospel through Peter. But now Paul is about to take center stage and be sort of the principal advocate uh, for the gospel. We also see a second shift, and that's a shift in the headquarters. Uh, up to this point, it's been predominantly in Jerusalem, but because of the intense persecution, both by the Jewish uh, people and by the state, it's sort of pressing believers out into the surrounding areas. And so Antioch sort of becomes kind of the new uh, headquarters for the church, if you will, a mission sending center. And then we see a third shift, and that is kind of in the, the primary audience or the primary recipients of the gospel message. Up to this point, it's been, first of all, Jews, but now it's shifting uh, to Gentiles in particular as we find the Jewish people kind of rejecting the faith. So these three big shifts are all happening right here. And when we go back to Acts 1.8 and we kind of think about this key verse for the book, this organizing verse for the book, uh, it helps us see some of these things. But you will receive power, this is Jesus speaking, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we are now seeing this gospel movement spread, not just from uh, this local region of Jerusalem and the phenomenon there, but now it is spreading sort of internationally, if you will, into Asia Minor, which is actually modern-day Turkey. And I hope that strikes a chord with you, because just this last week we saw the horrific news of a devastating earthquake, 7.8 in magnitude. The death toll in Syria and Turkey now is right around 28,000 and rising. Uh, by way of reference, Fairbanks proper is 32,000 people. That's how many are, are dead right now. So I want to stop right here and just uh, pray for them and pray for what's happening there. So Father, we uh, grieve anytime there is loss of life. We don't know uh, why these uh, terrible calamities happen, but we know your hands uh, are still sovereignly in control. Uh, Lord, we pray that those who have lost loved ones, whose lives have been completely changed, Lord, would consider their mortality and their spiritual condition. And if they're not confident in their salvation, Lord, I pray they would come to know you. So may you, Lord, redeem even this, this horrific situation. I pray for the church on the ground there, Lord, in Turkey and the surrounding area, that they would be the light of Christ, that they would serve well and love well in these dark times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Overall, the kind of the main thing that I want us to see this morning as we we look at our big passage is this. Mission work is messy work. Mission work is 
messy work. And I want to also inform you, in case you don't consider yourself this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've received the gospel and repented of sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, if you're a Christian, you're a missionary. You've been sent. You were commissioned by Christ. You may not go overseas. You may be just going across the street, or you may be going to the cubicle, or you may be going to a family member, but you're a missionary where God's placed you, if you're a Christian. Um, so whenever, but what we find here is that whenever we're talking about mission work, that is taking the gospel to places where it is not, whenever we're talking about mission work, uh, we find people encounter opposition. Opposition. And I don't just mean some suspicion or resistance from those that they're sharing the gospel with, but particularly when we engage in evangelism and we act as witnesses for Christ, then we are initiating a direct assault against Satan himself, who is declared in Scripture many times to be the prince of this world. We are engaging in an assault against that which he thinks is his. So being gospel witnesses triggers spiritual warfare. We can expect to encounter retaliation from the evil one when we're engaging in gospel conversations when we're evangelizing, when we're acting as ambassadors for Jesus, whether it's local or foreign missions. So, big idea here this morning is this. Mission work is messy work. When we promote the gospel, we provoke the devil. And that's what we see on display. So, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them, to the work which, for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so the first thing we see, and we're going to kind of track this through the different regions of their mission work here. We see in Antioch, a mission team is called by the Holy Spirit. When I see those words, my imagination just starts to go. I want to know, what did that look like? How do they know the Holy Spirit was calling them? There's a congregation, and they all seem to be pretty sure that's what was happening. And, and we're not told, so it's just something I'm, I'm curious about. But I want to make a couple of observations here, kind of about the church. First of all, we kind of notice that the church in Antioch is, is a beautifully diverse community. It reflects its, its demographic. Uh, we have Barnabas, first of all, who is a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus. And then we have Simeon, who is likely a black man by the description here, Niger, which means dark-skinned. And it's likely this is the very fellow that carried the cross for Christ. We have Lucius, um, another dark-skinned guy from Cyrene in North Africa. And then we have this fellow, Manaean, who's interesting. He's a, a no, from a noble Jewish family and apparently had playdates, you know, with Herod Antipas. So he's got some connection there. And then we have Saul, also known as Paul, the front man for the band. And he was someone who was a, a, a Jew but dispersed from Jerusalem because of persecution then becomes a persecutor of the church, then becomes the leader of the church. This is a wonderfully 
diverse picture here uh, of, some, of leadership from different ethnic backgrounds. And I think that's a really beautiful thing about the church. We see it here in the early days. And we also see that the church is diverse in the end of days. The prophet Isaiah says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. That is a beautiful picture. This faith does not belong to a nation. All nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in Revelation, we see the same picture as the Apostle John uh, gives us and portrays for us the vision that he received. He tells us from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, they are standing before the throne, dressed in the white robes, declaring salvation belongs to our God. The church is a beautifully diverse church, a diverse people from the beginning to its end. The second observation I would would make about the church here in Antioch is that they've developed some maturity. They've grown up. Maybe the church, early church, is about 10 years old at this particular point, but it's, it's showing some maturity here. Uh, one of the ways we see that on display is just their decision-making process really shows some health. Or, or they basically avoid two mistakes, two extreme mistakes on one side or the other. On the one side, uh, where we see it sometimes some unhealth in churches is decision-making that is completely individual, right? Individualism. God told me. And then the rest of the church is going, well, that's, yeah, that's interesting. He didn't tell the rest of us. So this individualism is problematic, but we all can also fall down on the other side of institutionalism, where it's as though the Holy Spirit couldn't ever prompt somebody's heart uh, for the church to see and confirm. But we see an, a beautiful middle ground here. The Holy Spirit showed them, and the church confirmed together that this was how he was moving. That's a, that's a beautifully mature church. Up to this point in time, the church has largely been dependent upon the apostles, right? They sat under their teaching. They followed their leadership. They both gave and received charitable gifts through them. Uh, they really they, they prayed for them during their struggles, but they were largely dependent on the apostles. How sweet is it now for the apostles to be sent by the church that they're leading? I, I think that's really sweet. They must be proud of their kids, so to speak, that they've been parenting. Uh, this is how we feel at home, right? We, we want to see uh, our children grow up and mature. At the very earliest of ages, it's just, come on, kid, just go to sleep. All you have to do is give in. Just let it happen. So we want to see our kids learn to fall asleep and self-soothe. Then we want to see them learn to toilet themselves. Please, God, let it happen soon. Then learn to feed themselves. Then learn to bathe and groom themselves. And then we want to see them learn to read. And then we want to see them learn how to learn for themselves. And then we want to see them learn how to drive themselves. And then we want to see them learn to drive themselves to work so they can pay for themselves. Can I get an amen to that? I will get Pentecostal at that particular point. 
And kind of sweetly over time, we look at these kids that God's entrusted to us and we sort of rejoice that they're not these little, totally dependent ones anymore, not helpless, they've become helpful. They're mature. And we see their gifts and strengths and abilities and passions. And it's, it's sweet. It's sad to see the little ones go, but it's also fun to meet the mature children arrive. And that's what we see in the church here. They've grown up. I think it must be sweet for, for Paul and for Barnabas to see these good little children become good leaders for the good of the church and for the good of the mission of God. They've matured. Um, and so this exciting new era begins, right? We might call it the, the age of missions, where this is no longer just a local phenomenon, but it's going overseas, so to speak. So the age of missions begins, and all's going to be good, right? It's all going to be good. Uh, not, at, not at first. Um, I know you guys like maps, so I brought a map. You may have to close one eye and squint or ask for help from your neighbor who can see better than you. And it could just be me, but I think that one's blurry. So if that one's blurry to you, you're, I don't think you're having a stroke. but You might be, but this seems a little clearer, so I'm going to come over here and help these guys. So here we are. We're starting in Antioch. This is their, uh, their launching point from the church. And they're going to travel over here to Cyprus, the island, uh, landing here in Salamis, and then traveling across to Paphos. And then we'll see them sail back across the Mediterranean over here to Perga through Italia. And uh, we'll kind of track their, their movements here. So verse 4. The two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a son of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So what we find in the second movement here is in Cyprus, in this little island, the team is opposed by what I'm going to call the devil here. Uh, we're told that Paul and Barnabas are accompanied by uh, uh, John Mark, who is actually Barnabas's cousin. So this is a family thing. And um, they, they set, as they set out for foreign missions, it's interesting, two things about where they stop. First of all, they stop, stop here in Cyprus, which is Barnabas's hometown. So they go to foreign missions by starting at home. And then uh, secondly, I think it's interesting, uh, here, we, here we have Paul called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, and where does he start? Jewish synagogue. 
So, and we'll find that this becomes a bit of an ongoing strategy for Paul. Uh, he will he'll kind of continue to use this approach, starting in the local synagogues where we find God-fearing Jewish people looking for Messiah. And his tactic is basically to say, yeah, Jesus is him. And so he kind of starts there. Uh, there's an interesting book I've put in your notes, if you care to kind of read on this subject a little bit, by Edith Schaefer. The title alone is sort of provocative and makes you think about it. Uh, Christianity is Jewish, she says. And what she attempts to do there is just to show the continuity of what God has started with the Hebrew people and what he has continued and grafted in through the Gentiles. But all of this is one continuous redemptive plan that God initiated from the beginning. So that the fact that Gentiles have an opportunity to respond to the gospel, this isn't an afterthought or a detour or a mistake. It was the plan all along, and she kind of fleshes that out. Paul states this much explicitly later in Romans 1.16 when he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And so he shows this, this continuity here. Um, but interesting, as they start this, uh, this mission work, they encounter this devilish figure named Bar-Jesus. Interesting name, Bar-Jesus. And when I read about this particular fella, um, I can't help but to think of Lord of the Rings. Do we have any Lord of the Rings fans here this morning? A few of you, all right. Is there a character that comes to mind when you think about this guy? Yes, Grima Wormtongue. Extra credit over here, whoever said it. Nicely done, back in the corner. Grima Wormtongue. I was reading this this week, and I thought, you know, I think Tolkien ripped this off. This isn't his idea. He stole it from Dr. Luke in the book of Acts. Um, this fella gets quite a, a list of descriptions here. First of all, he's a Jewish sorcerer, false prophet, named Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, and he is described as Elimus, which means something like smooth talker. This is Grima Wormtongue, right? He is this sneaky advisor to the pro-council here. And Paul, of course, is Gandalf, kind of comes in and sniffs him out and gets this guy dead to rights and says, you know, I haven't, uh, you know, keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I haven't passed through fire and death to bandy crooked woods with a witless worm like you, right? This is something like that. And um, what we find here, though, is that even though Paul and Barnabas are called by the Spirit of God, commissioned by the maturing church, they still encounter this devilish figure, right? Because mission work is messy work. When we promote the gospel, we provoke the devil. And it's interesting what Paul says to him here in verse 10. He's He's actually using a bit of a, a play on words, kind of like he's saying, your name implies Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, but in fact, you're a son of a devil. That's what Paul is, is telling him. And I think there is um, there's a warning for us as we encounter this particular figure. Uh, and that is this, that there are those who will even display powers that resemble the miraculous or magical, or even look like really dramatic ministry. And that is not a guarantee that that person is a servant of God. 
And this is not the first time we've run into this in the book of Acts. If you remember in chapter 8, we ran into Simon the sorcerer in Samaria. And he was performing all of these uh, sort of magical types of feats. People thought he was divine until he saw the apostles and the power of God at display through them. And he was converted, or at least seems to have been converted. But I think what, we're, what we ought to see from this is that we cannot trust signs or wonders Miracles or magic, a person's office that they hold, or how well-spoken they are. These things in and of themselves are not enough to show that one is a servant of God. In other words, there will be displays of power from the Holy One, but there will also be displays of power from the evil one. And God's people have to be discerning to know which is which. So how do we do that? And I think the Apostle Paul gives us some good advice on this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 3. And I'll just give you the short version of it here. But he says, Therefore I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit of God. And I don't think this is about just mere words. But I think this is about the total trajectory of a person's life and ministry. In other words, one who is truly working by the Spirit of God is going to be Christ-centered in their purpose, in their life purpose. They're going to be Christ-ordered in their priorities. They're going to be Christ-affirming in their speech. And they're going to be Christ-imitating in their life practice. Christ-centered in purpose, Christ-ordered in their priorities, Christ-affirming in speech, and Christ-imitating in their life practice. And actually, we're given a good example of this kind of discernment here in the passage. The pro-council actually seems to do a good job discerning things here. We're, we're even told in the text that he's, he's intelligent. Nice to have intelligent people in the church. And we see that he doesn't just become a convert because of the miracle— but look at what the text says. Verse 12. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. So he took both. He saw the power on display, but he saw the teaching and the tenor of the one who had done it. And that allowed him to make a discerning uh, choice to convert to Christianity. All right, so let's bring up our map here. Now we're moving on to a new region. We're moving into uh, what's called Perga. And I'll throw you guys a bone over here since I've pointed over there. Perga's right up here in this bay. And Italia is actually the port of landing. And to be honest with you, when I read scripture and I see cities and places, very often I glaze over. I don't have a great atlas mind. But I had a chance to go to Turkey uh, in 2019 and I got to go to Perga, and I brought pictures. So, uh, so here's a couple pictures. This is um, the port in Italia, and the Apostle Paul walked right through these arches. And that was super fun just to walk right there where he walked. And this is the port of Italia. Um, I mean, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Turkey. I think of people just think of dark and, or, you know, hot and dusty. But, man, the Mediterranean and the mountains that are usually snow-capped, the Taurus Mountains. Um, and this is an amphitheater 
in Perga, and a sad thing kind of about this one as we were there visiting it um, is you could see where they had sort of remodified half of the infield to be a place where they could persecute Christians. And that still holds up there. Um, I think I got another picture or two. Oh, yeah, well, there's two more. This place was massive. Uh, it, I think it was only, only Thessalonica was, um, or excuse me, Laodicea was, uh, was larger. Uh, and we only had an hour here. But the Apostle Paul walked right through here um, along with Barnabas and John Mark. Last one. There you go. So that's, that's per- oh, I said that was last. That's the last one. <laughs> that's Perga. Um, it's a beautiful place. It was enriching for me and my faith to see some of these places that we find on the pages of Scripture. I hope to get to the Holy Land someday. But there's a real ugly thing that happens here, too. And we're told that this is the place where John Mark deserted his companions on the missionary journey. Um, I mean, in this, in this chapter, it's kind of just said matter-of-factly where John left them to return to Jerusalem, kind of like no big deal. But we find out later on as we go in the book of Acts in chapter 15, this was a big deal. And it's described as abandonment. He deserted them. And so later on, this even becomes a huge dispute between Barnabas and Paul when they're considering another missionary journey. And uh, Barnabas is like, yeah, let's bring my cousin along. And Paul's like, no, I'm not having it. He deserted us. We're not doing that. And the two of them have such a sharp dispute that we're told they part company. It splits up the team. And it was over this event right here that he deserted them in this particular place uh, of Perga. And we're not told why he left. Um, Maybe he didn't like, you know, sailing. I don't know how you couldn't like sailing those seas, though they're beautiful. The Mediterranean's beautiful. Maybe he was sort of intimidated by encountering this sorcerer. Um, Maybe he had to go see about a girl. You know, we don't know, maybe. Or maybe he had to go work on his dissertation, what we know as the Gospel of Mark, right? Which would come out in just a few years. Don't know. Um, But it's actually not a very pretty story. It's kind of ugly. And and, And yet I'm glad that it's recorded for us because it shows that the rise of the Christian church happened against all kinds of everyday, ordinary mess-ups and disappointments and setbacks, right? They were, there were attacks, there were arrests, there was embezzlement, there were power struggles, there was team disunity, division, abandonment, sickness, and shipwrecks. It wasn't smooth sailing. So we see mission work is messy work. If we're going to carry the gospel to places where it's not, we're going to encounter uh, messy things. Uh, so then we move to our last section here. We're moving to um, Sidon Antioch. Uh, and here we find that the team is rejected by the Jews. And I have the map again, but this map is useless here because I didn't capture further enough north. It's going to be up in here. Sidon Antioch is up in that region. I don't know if you guys saw it there. Uh, so it's not there, but... So let's look at this, verse 14. And I will tell you, I'm not reading all of these verses. We're going to kind of skip and move here, okay? Verse 14. From Pergo they went to Sidon, Antioch, 
On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations of Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And then he continues on through basically the time of the judges and the time of kings, of Saul and of David, all the way up until John the Baptist, who affirmed the arrival of the promised Messiah. Now down to 26. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Then he goes through and he shows how this was again all predicted in the Psalms. And then finally in verse 38, we get to sort of the point of application. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. So first of all, when I hear this whole sermon, I can't, it stands out to me how similar it is to what Peter preached in chapter 2 and chapter 4, and then Stephen in chapter 7. It's kind of like they're all sharing the same sermon here. It's very similar as they show God's redemptive plan all the way back uh, to their forefathers and showing how Jesus was the one that was predicted all along. Um, and, I, and I think this is sort of a point that we have to understand that the, the Bible is not just a, a book or a collection of stories, but it is in fact one story, the story of Jesus. And this is sort of the hermeneutic that we, we are given here. We're meant to see Jesus is the one that was proclaimed from the beginning. And then Paul kind of gives us something a little bit new here. He sort of lifts the hood and he shows us kind of what's happening in terms of the mechanics of it all. And he uses a phrase that is a beautiful phrase, justification. Justification. I don't, if, you don't, if you don't know what that word means, justified, a simple way I like to remember it is this, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. A way that we can be forgiven for every sin. This was something that they couldn't achieve with the Old Testament law. And as we've talked about this over the years, you know the Old Testament law was never meant to save us. It was meant to show us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. But in Christ, we can be justified, forgiven for every sin. 
And so Paul takes this message to the Jewish people and kind of gives them first right of refusal. And unfortunately, they did. Verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them, and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. That's a little snarky, isn't it? You don't consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. As we'll see as we go on, this continues to be a steady strategy of the Apostle Paul to go to the synagogues first and to preach a message like this. And then when it is very often refused, to turn to the Gentiles and to give them an opportunity. So the Jews are sort of given first right of refusal. Preaching the book of Acts is difficult because sometimes we're just looking at the story. We're chronicling what happened. And so sometimes it's difficult to know, well, what is it we're supposed to take from this? What's our point of application? And so I want to just, just really quickly look at, I think, four things that we can take, uh, take away from the ministry of Paul and Barnabas here. The first is this. They preach the gospel generously. It's just what they do. It's on their lips. It's wherever they are, they are proclaiming the gospel. And I think it can be very easy for us to kind of hear that and just go, yeah, 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 that's what they did. But the reality is this. You have been commissioned by Christ to be a missionary where you are. We're to be generous with the gospel, sharing it regularly as an order of our lives. And I, I want to kind of get in your face and ask you the question, are you at all on mission for Christ? When was the last time you articulated the gospel to someone? When was the last time you had a gospel conversation or attempted to? This is the main thing that we're left on earth to do. It's the one thing we won't be able to do in heaven. We are to be his ambassadors here and now. Be generous with the gospel. Secondly, this really stood out to me in my, in my study. This hit me personally. They caution people about rejecting it. Consistently. Peter did it, Stephen did it, and Paul does it here. They caution him, don't reject this. I think this is interesting because in our world, we live in such a pluralistic um, culture right now where you can kind of, you, you know, believe whatever you want, coexist, Unitarian, Universal, whatever, right? Anything goes. If that's good for you, good. I'll believe this. Doesn't matter if they contradict. Everybody do their own thing. And I think when we proclaim the gospel in this particular cultural moment, I think people kind of feel like we're off just giving them another offering, you know, kind of like 
Would you like fries with that? You know, take it or leave it. But, but Paul does something interesting. He cautions him not to reject it. In other words, if Christianity is true, then all the other religions are false. It's mutually exclusive. It's not this goes for you and this goes for me. Paul shows them what's at stake. This is the message. If you reject it, you're in trouble. The third thing I think that they do is they preach with a kind of confidence, not in themselves, but as though this were God's work to do in people's hearts. As if there was a powerful God drawing people to himself. They just kind of boldly proclaim it and let the chips fall where they are. And I admire that. And then fourthly, they don't get bogged down in somebody's rejection. I think they're patient and gracious to have conversations with people over time. But when they get whipped up and deal with persecution and adversity, what do they do? They kind of tap the dust off their feet. This is a sign like, we're out of here. Your rejection is now on your head. You've been given an opportunity to be saved. And you've rejected the greatest gift ever. It's on you. And they move on. And I think that's kind of a wonderful uh, example for us because we want to be long-suffering with someone who is searching and considering. But if someone's just going to come back at you with hostility, move on. There are softer hearts and riper fruit ready to fall in the hands of a gracious God. And I think they give us that example. So to wrap this up here, missions work is messy work. When we promote the gospel, we provoke the devil. And yet God is at work in all of the mess, redeeming the lost and bringing those near to him who were once far off. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for the example of these first missionaries, their love of you, their confidence in your work, their long-suffering in the midst of persecution and struggle. And I pray, Lord, that we would be motivated and animated by their example, that we would be generous with the gospel. Lord, that we would warn those who are not yet saved about the dangers of rejecting it. Lord, that we would be uh, those who are truly your ambassadors and who trust you to do the saving work. Direct us to those who need to hear the gospel. May we be ready spokesmen for you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.